I mean, I, I feel the temperature rising. Oh, the second you press record, start. I mean, is the heat on again? The heat is on. <laughs> I might need to shake down. Shake it's down. So hot. <laughs> we need another heat is on. What do we got? <laughs> I guess we could go to Bob Seeger. Uh, yeah, Glenn Fry worked before. We get another old classic rock guy. Uh, yeah, Glenn Fry. They they asked him to come back, and he he didn't like the song, but he no, didn't want to. He didn't want to be rude, so he kept like coming in and like getting like my voice is hoarse, or he'd sing like off tune, and eventually he just like said he needed to leave, and then like literally went back to Detroit <laughs> without telling anyone <laughs> he was just afraid of telling them hey, this song sucks i don't like it probably got a call from don simpson saying he'd never work in this town again and glenn fry's like man i'm in the eagles <laughs> what have you done with your life yeah. who are the eagles i don't know who the fuck the eagles are <laughs> fuck the eagles <laughs> i'll make my own eagles i'm gonna make them all i'm gonna stuff you and put you on my shelf in my sex room <laughs> my sex dungeon which he did have. We'll get into it. <laughs> oh, no! Done! <laughs> 50, Fifty Shades of Simpson. Hello, and welcome to the award-winning podcast, The Academy Academy, the show that discovers the absolute, undeniable, and scientifically proven greatest performance in your favorite actor's esteemed career. I'm Don Saunderson. And I'm Patrick Remian. Welcome to The Academy, and welcome to kind of... Uh, uh, another episode of Scott Scott, and kind of a transition episode into next week's sub season, sub season, sub season, sub season. <laughs> what are they doing? <laughs> what are we talking about? We are, of course, talking about a visionary alliance, Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. We've gotten so into the universe of the Scott brothers and orbiting this universe benefactors to this universe hmm. perhaps evil overlords to some of this universe <laughs> an emperor palpatine type figures yes are of course 80s and 90s mega producers don simpson and jerry bruckheimer hmm. we've already dabbled a little bit in them when we met them initially in the breast years of our lives when we talked about beverly hills cop one Mm -hmm. They, of course, produce that. We've also discussed them uh, with regards to Top Gun, of course. Mm -hmm. But uh, we've decided to go deeper because they returned to the fold once again this week with Beverly Hills Cop 2. So next week, we'll be talking a little. We'll be talking about their careers and lives even further and taking a look at non, non Scott Scott related films in their um, filmography. That season will, of course, be called a Visionary Alliance Simpson-Bruckheimer Digression. <laughs> yes. But, of course, this week we're Scott Scott and we're in the heart of Hollywood, baby. Hollywood. Mm. And this is, of course, Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. Hey, the first one, one of the biggest hits of the 1980s. Made a megastar. Perfect movie. Eddie Murphy. We've talked about it. We love it. Thirteen million dollar budget made three hundred and sixteen million at the box office. That my folk, my friends, that's a hit. And you know what that means? That means a sequel. Mm. Not just any sequel though, because like you know, Simpson and Bruckheimer, one of their credos: bigger, better, faster, crazier. <laughs> so they decided that the relatively mild mannered Martin Brest. Hit the bricks, pal. <laughs> yeah, get out of here with your weird old men robbing a bank bullshit. You know, and Martin Brest, 
thankfully did not have to do this and did Midnight Run, one of our favorite movies. <laughs> uh, still a banger. Absolute classic. Watched it the other day. It was a, just a delight and a treat. So they went to the man who brought them such success the previous year, mm. with Top Gun. They went to in, our in-house man at this point. We could call him that, mm. Tony Scott. He, he's the man now, Doug. He is the man now, Doug, for 1987's Beverly Hills Cop Part Two, buddy action comedy film. Let's get these stats out of the way before we get into some biographical details, uh, background details. Directed by Tony Scott, screenplay by Larry Ferguson and Warren Skaren. We will learn that uh, they were kind of in-house screenwriters for the Bruck- Bruckheimer Simpson factory uh, going forward because almost every Bruckheimer Simpson script went through about, oh, let's say seven to 12 screenwriters. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> inter- interestingly enough, story by Eddie Murphy and Robert D. Walks. Um, when your star has a story by credit... Um, the stench of vanity project uh, and uh, being too cool, too invulnerable um, starts to waft to the surface. We'll put it that way. Yeah. You know, as someone who watched Wings Hauser's film, The Art of Dying last night, we, which he also wrote and directed. Uh, true, you know, I know a vanity project when I see one. <laughs> <laughs> I need to, I gotta, I gotta uh, get there at some point. Characters uh, based on characters by Danilo Bach and Daniel Pietri Jr. Mm. Produced naturally by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Three editors on this one. Chris Lebanon, uh, Leben, Lebanon, sorry, Chris. I always say Michael, Chris Lebanon too. <laughs> Michael Tronic and Billy Weber, who Billy Weber was one of the in-house fixers for Simpson and Bruckheimer when it came to post-production also in-house fixer for Terrence Malick. So ah, two yeah. sides of the cinematic coin <laughs> uh, music by Harold Faltermeyer and uh, Patrick has been kind enough to take the time to read Harold Faltermeyer's autobiography. Oh man. And we'll be filtering in Faltermeyer deets both on this episode and next week's episode. <laughs> I have over three pages of Faltermeyer facts. <laughs> this this film naturally stars Eddie Murphy as the iconic character, maybe his most iconic character, Detective Axel Foley, mm-hmm. J- Judge Reinhold, John Ashton, and Ronnie Cox return to the game as um, Beverly Hills cops, actual Beverly Hills cops, not in a funny kind of sense, not in a goofy sense like Eddie Murphy. Nah. Uh, Judge Reinhold is Billy Rosewood. John Ashton is John Taggart. Ronnie Cox is Andrew Bogomil. Bogomil, what a good character last name. Bogomil is a crazy, that is like the name of a warlock. I love it. Back in Detroit, Gil Hill is back as Inspector Todd, the ever angry Inspector Todd. I could, <laughs> could talk about a little bit more about his background shortly. Um, Paul Reiser, um, perhaps the glue man to the series <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, is back as Detective uh, Jeff Friedman, and uh, in the mix this time around, we've we've added some heat, some new heat mm. is is in it, starting with Jurgen Prochnow as the uh, debonair and evil Maxwell Dent. Ooh. Oh, uh, first Faltermeyer fact: uh, Jorgen Prochnow and Faltermeyer would uh, constantly have brunch at Morador's uh, mansion. 
Apparently, like, Giorgio oh. Morador would have these, like, elaborate brunches for, like, the German community, like... The uh, German expats in, yeah. in Hollywood? And so they, they've, like, would uh, frequently brush elbows. Oh, interesting. That sounds... I would love Giorgio. Yeah. In the Academy Academy, an invite to one of those brunches. <laughs> my, uh, my grandmother was German. That should, um... Do the trick. That can get you in. <laughs> That'll get you in. Um, also in the mix, of course, Brigitte Nielsen as Carla Fry. <laughs> she identified as a big, tall, blonde woman pretty much constantly. You better believe it. Yeah. <laughs> she more of a uh, prop or set of piece prop. of the character. Yeah, also, probably. interestingly enough, uh, while married to Sly Stallone at this time, um, Cheated on Stallone with both Don Simpson and Tony Scott. <laughs> no, both of them. Yeah. <laughs> hey, look, Tony. I get because Tony is like uh, he's climbing mountains without like help. He's sex he, incarnate. I assume he, he shows up to set shirtless, and very little is questioned about that. I mean, he's just wearing his little hat. <laughs> yeah, he's got his hat and some short shorts and a cigar. <laughs> welcome to <laughs> welcome to a Tony Scott set. Um. Alan Garfield is is in is in the game as Chief Harold Lutz. Brian O'Connor plays Detective Biddle. Dean Stockwell in the film. Charles, perhaps Carlos Kane, uh, never really cleared up. Um, Although I do know that now that Carlos is Spanish for Charles. Paul Guilfoyle, who a lot of our longtime listeners might remember from uh, Al Pacino's yeah. tremendous, tremendous film. <laughs> what the hell was that called? The Local um, Stigmatic. The Local Stigmatic. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, Al. We don't remember that epic? <laughs> I just remember Al's like a Cockney accent. That's like the biggest thing that sticks out. But yes, Paul Guilfoyle's back. Yeah. Robert Ridgely is the mayor of Beverly Hills, who doesn't seem to have anything else to do other than kind of sit at the police station. Just hanging out. He's chilling. Uh, you would, a... uh, fan, uh, movie fans may remember him as the colonel from Boogie Nights. <laughs> um, oh, no. And uh, Chris Rock in the mix is a parking valet who does not know what to do with a cement mixer. Um, Hugh Hefner, naturally, as himself. Yeah, that's a line. Isn't it? And um, last but certainly not least, playing least last but certainly not least last but certainly not least playing um, the iconic Sidney Bernstein, Gilbert Gottfried, the late God. great Gilbert Gottfried is in the film. Oh, what a character! Uh, what an insane moment in this movie. He's um. Please use my computer. Uh, it's a it's a it's a scene we'll get to. It's a uh, it's a stunner. Uh, the movie was budgeted at twenty-seven million, a little bit more expensive. It's all on screen, though. You can see how where it's more expensive. Eddie probably got a better payday too. Um, box office three hundred million dollars. The Simpson Bruckheimer machine keeps chugging away. <laughs> um, oh man! Yeah. It was the um, Patrick. You brought this fun fact up to me. Third biggest domestic hit of nineteen eighty-seven. Two ahead of it. I mean. What a time to be alive! Fatal attraction and three men and a baby. I wanted. I want to be in. I want to be in America when three men and a baby mania swept the nation. Yeah, I mean, to make like, to make two hundred three men and a baby made like 
<laughs> just like this two hundred forty million dollars at the box office. I like one point seven billion dollars in today's money I, or something. I mean, an absolute sensation. These three fellas, and you know, we watched it while Jen was uh, with child, and um, weird ass movie. <laughs> would would you? Okay, here's my question: Would you trust a bit your baby with these three men? Um. Well, not at first, but that's the entire point. Oh. By the end, these guys are freaking terrific with a damn baby. <laughs> See, that's fucked up. Like, they have to, like, yeah, there has to be... Like, gotta, like, I feel bad for the training baby. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first is rough. Rough. First few weeks. Um, yeah, Steven, I don't trust Steve Gutenberg with yeah. a, a potato peeler, let alone a baby. Well, you know, he's kind of like... He's a middle ground man. Because Danson's kind of the wild card fun guy oh, of okay. the group. He's an actor. He's an artist. I mean, come on. Yeah, he's giving the baby a mohawk. He's... And Tom Selleck is like the stick-in-the-mud responsible one. He's an architect. Danson's an actor. Steve Gutenberg is a cartoonist. And they have this sprawling Winchester mystery house of an apartment in the middle of Manhattan. God only knows how they afforded it. <laughs> Definitely haunted by like... You've got like 18 pinball machines. It's very bachelor friendly. <laughs> Just three guys closing in on 40, living together. They're trying oh. to fill the, the hole in their heart with pinball pinball and you know sports ball and you know just like three regular guys nothing sexual (laughs) (laughs) these men don't fuck three masculine men (laughs) okay (laughs) that was a weird digression um (laughs) the beverly hills cop 2 has a 46 percent on rotten tomatoes Eddie Murphy remains appealing as the wisecracking acts of Foley, but Beverly Hills Cop doesn't take him or the viewer anywhere new enough to justify a sequel. Eddie Murphy himself said, Beverly Hills Cop 2 is probably the most successful, mediocre picture in history. It made $250 million worldwide and was a half-assed movie. Cop 2 was basically a rehash of Cop 1, but wasn't as spontaneous and funny. Eddie Murphy... Fairly astute self-critic, perhaps. We'll get into it in just a moment. Uh-huh. Um, Ebert gave it one star. Damn. Oh. And wrote, what is comedy? Oh, boy. Oh, no, that's not a good start. <laughs> not <laughs> a good start. It's a pretty basic question, I know. But Beverly Hills Cop 2 never thought to ask it. Jesus, oh, Ebert. Ebert. Got <laughs> knives out, man. <laughs> what is this, a Ryan Johnson flick? Yeah, What's happening? Oh, man. <laughs> Get ready. That, that dang Inspector Clouseau, or whatever the hell his yeah, name is. Inspector Leghorn. Inspector Leghorn. Daniel <laughs> yeah. Craig is, in, is on the hunt for I say, comp- I say. I say, murder I say. is afoot. <laughs> I'll say, I'll say, you say this film is a comedy, but where are the jokes? <laughs> this is like Lockhorn Columbo. Leghorn Columbo. I say, hey. just uh, one more question. I I'll say, say, I'll say. just, just uh, one more question. Why does Judge Reinhold need so many guns in this film? <laughs> Runs away from Get him, boys. <laughs> Arrest that um, man. Film was nominated, though, for one Academy Award. Oh, really? that. Best original, oh, best original yeah. song, Shakedown. Oh, Your man, uh, Harold uh, Faltermeyer. Yeah, he lost Nominated. it to to uh, yeah. Dirty Dancing. Well, sorry, Harold. even Harold could have seen the writing on the wall on that one. Uh, fascinating, though, subplot, uh, Golden Raspberry Award Worst Original Song. Nominated for I Want Your Sex from George Michael. Oh. Yeah. 
I mean, come on. Come we on. Hate, we hate the Razzies, though. He's... What a bunch of ding-dongs. That, that it, it truly, it's one of those things where, like, the Golden Raspberry Awards are funny for exactly, like, one year of your life. Like, when you're 13, maybe, or 14. Mm-hmm. And then you you look at them and you're like, oh, this is just arbitrary. And... Oh, it's very, um, you know, our, our credo here, every movie is a miracle. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to rip into things. Come on. You yeah, might not have liked Beverly Hills Cop 2. I can see perhaps some of the points being made. I think Beverly Hills Cop 2 is a deeply entertaining movie. I guess we can get in, before we get into the plot here, we can give a little bit of our own personal backgrounds. I've seen Beverly Hills Cop 2 more than I've seen Beverly Hills Cop 1 in my life. Oh, interesting. Um, and I chalked this up to when I was a kid and having a little one now, I, I can see it happening. Um, I famously, in the Saunderson household got my dad's copy of the VHS of Beverly Hills Cop Part 1 and annihilated it. It's ah. like, like a three-year-old um. <laughs> tore it to shreds. Did not get my great, grubby little fingers, though, my dirty fingers, on uh, his copy of Beverly Hills Cop 2, which mm. got watched endlessly. <laughs> Instead, <laughs> we never replaced our copy of Beverly Hills Cop 1. And I own both of them now on vhs each each of the two of them as a nostalgic memory of my destruction of my destruction so i've seen this movie a ton of times i knew every i hadn't seen it for a while but i remembered every beat when we started uh you know watching again i watched it twice too (laughs) over the past week (laughs) it's so funny because like this this is is why it is a mediocre movie but it's really fun it doesn't really matter it's like super entertaining oh yeah no it's like uh, yeah, because it was my first time watching it. I'd never liked Beverly Hills Cop before it. Uh, this was my first watch uh, via the podcast. And I, I even though I haven't seen it, I kind of get that same vibe that you did. Where, like, it's like, yeah, I know where all this is going. I know how this is going to end. Like, it's pretty, like, you know, pretty, uh, it's pretty clear the direction they're going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it, yeah, and it's definitely not as, like, well written or um i guess like per- i think what Bev- eddie said it best it's not spontaneous yeah that's part of it yeah because like that that intro is such a banger i know i rewatched the first 10 minutes of beverly hills cop one this week too and it is just it's a thrill it's it's incredible yeah no i watched yeah i rewatched beverly hills cop for this and i and i, I still get like shocked by that moment um, and it's funny that they bring back the guy who was, did the seat of the cigarette deal with. They really, I, I kind of love that they bring back every little side character in this Except movie. Except for um, Serge, mm. who does return to Beverly Hills Cup. Okay, good. I understand. Good, good, good. But, yeah, that is a bummer. Then, uh, like, yeah. His, the girl who I'm forgetting from Beverly Hills Cop 1. That's like, like the... who like is his like initial connection to Beverly Hills. That's the weird thing about both Cop 1 and 2 is that, like, well, at least, like, that lady is there in Beverly Hills Cop 1, but in Beverly Hills Cop 2, like, there's no, like, romantic, you'd think there'd be, a, not not saying there has to be something shoehorned in, but it is truly crazy that there isn't, like, any romantic anything. Well, outside of, like, basic, like, surface-level misogyny. Oh, yeah, just ban- um, ban- 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 it, banal horniness. It, it, it was sexless, yeah, but it's, like, yeah. banal, like, horniness, which is, I think, because um, Simpson and Bruckheimer are aiming this movie point-blank at teenagers. Uh, yeah. would be my guess. Yeah, that's 100% and true. And lead me to my first fun fact I read about Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, 
they were at some press junket and this reporter walks and sees Jerry Bruckheimer standing on the balcony looking over the hotel pool. Mm -hmm. And the reporter comes up and they see, you know, it's all like teenagers and who are having fun down at the pool and that kind of thing. And the reporter goes, I see what you're doing. And Bruckheimer looks at him and he goes, well, yeah, what's that? And he goes, you're trying to read their minds to figure out what to do next. <laughs> and he goes, no, you have it wrong. It's the opposite of that. Don and I have not tell them have not told them what to like next. Okay. <laughs> I was like, man, I wish I had that kind of swag. <laughs> like, Damn, like that is like that is like they they were like on another planet. <laughs> they they for a brief moment, a brief window in time had absolute complete clinical control of the teenage male mind i think yes i think that's an accurate statement between like, yeah from like flash dance to let's who, say the well they obviously their partnership you know ran you know we'll, we'll talk about the end of their partnership but you know bruckheimer's last kind of i think like la he, he had, he's he's obviously had a massive hit with top gun maverick this year but his last like i think major thing i would argue is pirates of the caribbean curse of the black pearl like it's like last like grand slam here's something new for popular culture yeah that's and that and that's still like that movie does still like it, that movie is so popular in like the mm -hmm. world like it's crazy how huge that is in like asia yeah. well maybe we, and maybe you know we don't need to get too deep into it but the truly bizarre world of johnny depp fandom is yeah. which other people have covered in, in depth but it is uh, it is surreal it, it's like that's the word i'm going to use for it, it is surreal it's like crazy. the way that he is like defended and worshipped on the internet like this guy this guy of all guys, <laughs> Willy Wonka, the weird Willy Wonka, the one that sucks, like this one. <laughs> yeah, I know. Breakdancing Mad Hatter, maybe with the. I've never rolled my eyes more in a film when I saw Mad the Mad Hatter breakdance in Alice in Wonderland. Never, the, never has anything hurt my soul more. The guy that, despite all of his personal travails. I'd say his acting style has been truly revealed as being like all smoke and mirrors and like zero something. Like, hand the man a wig. That is his acting style. The guy who looks like, uh, you know, those like people that do like, and he, he looks like an impersonator of himself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he's Di Diamond Jim from yes. the Tim and Eric movie. He is Diamond Jim. Yeah. Oh, just to bring it, hey, to bring it back to uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2 on the subject of Tim and Eric again. Uh, Paul Guilfoy, our local stigmatic, he looks like Tennessee. He fucking looks like Tennessee. Yeah, they from... put they put him in whatever like a blonde they get, wig. Like, well, there's like um, I don't know, like football fans out there would know, like the owner of the um, Las oh, uh, Las Vegas now Raiders, Mark Davis, has got this like insane bowl cut, weird like stringy long hair, and that's what he reminded me of. And in the same exact vein, it's like you guys are rich guys, you could go. To like a real hairstylist and like do something here. Like Maxwell Dent isn't having a problem looking like a stud. 
He looks great. Come yeah, on, Nico great. or Nikos. Yeah. I know. He's a famous gun runner. <laughs> yeah, I love this. It's like one of those movies that exists where like there's a famous hitman or a famous gun runner, which is like insane. I know, and everyone knows about it, but they kind of just let him wander Beverly Hills. I don't know. It's 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 an interesting movie because they're not too concerned with logistics mm-hmm. of it. Like in the first one, kind of the balancing act of how Alex's Axel is going to kind of like work things out mm-hmm. as like a Detroit cop in Beverly Hills is much more thought out. This one is nuts. I mean, it involves a Ferrari and Paul Reiser impersonating detect Inspector Todd and <laughs> everything in between. But you know, at the end of the day, it was massive. It was another smash for Simpson and Bruckheimer, and they just kind of like the pieces of like a hot soundtrack, flashy looks, cool guys, babes, um, really like worked for a long time. And there was also interestingly enough when in the early '80s when Michael Eisner and Barry Diller took over Paramount, and Don Simpson before he became an independent producer was the head of production. Mm-hmm. they installed like this entire rule that no movie could be over 100 minutes long and they had all sorts of like oh man and that but that is also why if you like look up 1980s paramount movies most of them are you would refer to as a banger because they're all like 104 minutes tops <laughs> and like <laughs> which is not bad i'm not for you know, that you know and because i think that it was all kind of a like the result of dealing with the Francis Ford Coppola's of the world and taking back control from the inmates were not allowed to run the asylum mm. anymore. Like in the seventies when the directors were in charge, you know, yeah. Simpson and Bruckheimer wanted like to show it's like, actually it's a producer genre, like television is. Wow. That's it was well, their goal. Man, and that, I mean, if you, evil. but if you look at how things are, I mean, probably, the most famous filmmaker in some circles in the world is Kevin Feige, who has never directed a movie. That's true. Yeah. That is, yeah, that is like, yeah, that is true and grim. I mean, yeah, it, and well, yeah. It's led people to care more about brands and corporations and CEO. Because Kevin Feige is basically a CEO. He's not like, you know, an on the ground artisan. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's what. Why that's also why too. Like, like that that the the big A list celebrity is dead mm-hmm. because like they've made it. They've got the industry set up in such a way where like the star is Baby Groot. It's not. But Vin it's Diesel. also it's it's um, you know, capitalism in a nutshell. So like in the seventies, the directors, essentially the workers, decided, hey, you know, we want. To take some swings at the plate. In the 90s, that was the time period when everyone was writing stories about, isn't it unfair that actors get $20 million per movie? And they were like already fighting back. And I, I will tell you this. Every producer's a dime a dozen. There is one Tom Cruise. Pay him. Yeah. Pay him. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, Here is it? It's like, but I'm also like the guy who argues LeBron James is underpaid. Like, you want him. Yeah. You, Look, what's what are you gonna do? You got him on your team. He got the he got the <laughs> Cleveland Cavaliers trophy. Yeah, I, I, I hate to tell you, but some people are extraordinary, and their art needs to be rewarded. Yeah, some I'm people aren't, and you know, but it it is what it is. But I like I, I it is it remains like bosses like saying, "Wait a second, wait a second, 
there are no more stars. Stars don't matter anymore. I mean, they were saying before um, the like that they felt the Marvel characters were basically like James Bond, that they could recast them at any time and no one would care because it's the IP. But I actually don't think that's true at this point. I actually think yeah. that, and they don't want to admit to that, but I don't think that's, that's why they just kill them all. That's why they'll kill off the veteran ones because the veteran ones will ask for more, the most money. Yeah, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Like, I think, like, because, like, uh, what were the... They only were able to get get a... Uh, they were only able to recast in the beginning, because originally, like, Terrence Howard was, like, the friend of and, Iron Man. And, and the Marvel MCU fans are just lunatics about continuity on oh. the, high, on the like, highest level. Oh, total and that drives that, that, that kind of stuff drives them absolutely crazy. The idea that, like, no, 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 no. This is Hugh Jackman, you know, and he's going to get recast. He's too old to play Wolverine. Oh, yeah. He's like almost 60, probably. Yeah, yeah he's in his mid 50s. He's yeah. he's going to get recast when they do the Marvel Cinematic Universe version of X-Men. Oh, man. And what are, what are people going to feel about that? I don't know. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nor do I. Uh... I, I. You know, so anyway, back to Beverly Hills Cop Part 2. Basically, our storyline here is Axel Foley is still up to all sorts of schemes, scams and flams, mm-hmm. and while working as a actually morally sound and great police officer at simultaneously in the city of Detroit. But instead of hanging out of a truck, his opening scam in this one is he gets dressed in a three in a fancy suit. He looks great. He's cool. Yeah. He he does his laugh right at the start for no reason at all just to let you know hey we're watching eddie murphy <laughs> don't worry i'm gonna make you smile yeah we're gonna have fun here we're gonna have fun here he um as patrick and i alluded to there's a close-up of him dropping like a full piece of white bread into a fish tank to feed his fish faulty they're all dead they yeah. died that day that will kill the fish eddie fool and uh so he's just up to his thing he's got a ferrari he's He's undercover, but he's having fun. He's, you know, as usual with Axel Foley, he's having fun with it. Meanwhile, in Beverly Hills, we're dealing with some high-end robbers Mm. who have left a signature at the scene of their crimes. Don't do that. Associated with an alphabetical sequence. Thus, these are known as the alphabet crimes. Uh, they are led by a striking and intimidating short-haired blonde, bleach blonde woman who wears sunglasses, uh, who, yeah, I would like take my money if that lady pointed a gun at me. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I'm out. I'm peeing my pants. The sunglasses alone are intimidating. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we got this like bureaucrat, new police chief, Harold Lutz. Mm. who is doing everything he can to stay on the mayor's good side. The mayor, who seems to be a useless man. <laughs> Just likes hanging out at the police hangs station. Hangs out at the police station. And <laughs> he hears all the verbal abuse, and it doesn't really like get to him until the end of the movie. It's very funny. He's like, he, he might be on like quaaludes and just kind of like zoned out. I don't know. Um, and he's like, he's getting in the way of our guys. Our classic characters, Bogomil, Rosewood, and Taggart, mm. who 
you want to get a piece of these alphabet crimes in a big way. And Bogomil's kind of like checking things out on his own. He's awesome. He's great. You know, we love Ronnie Cox. He's a great detective. And the visuals of him, like, there's so many great like this movie looks so sumptuous it's, at it's, times. It's it's slick as hell. It's yeah. slick as hell. Like the, I they, mean, they, they, a lot of like the jogging near the oil derricks. It's just it's beautiful. Yeah, it's you know, and Tony's like he's working within the game, within the system, but he's mm-hmm. also like he's starting to show some of his flashier, even flashier and flashier sides that he gets to as his career progresses, and that kind of like sun dappled. It's always sunset look you know it's it's always the golden hour (laughs) it's always golden so then they um basically they go behind the new chief's back to try and solve the case he gets pissed off he suspends bogomil Mm. for it and punishes taggart and rosewood with traffic duty Ah. on his way home from work bogomil sees a car that is out of service he goes to help him Guess who's under the hood? Yeah, it's Carla. It's Brigitte Nielsen. And she blasts Bogomil twice. Good swibs. Gotta, gotta hand it to him. Like, when they say he's still alive, you're stunned because he gets, like, yeah. rocked. He <laughs> like, looks like his, like he had a chest burst. Or yeah, his, like, yeah, his chest explodes. <laughs> and so he is hospitalized. Uh-oh. Now it's mm. freaking personal. And here's what I'm wondering. So while he's on some operation, Axel sees the news that Bogomil got shot on the Detroit news. Yeah, it's like, and they 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 try to justify it with, and now from our LA desk, but like, why does the Detroit? That's not well, how to me, local to me, news. To me, you get Bogomil's daughter, you get Taggart or Rosewood. Just gives Axel a call because they're fishing buddies. They're yeah, friends. They have Pete. Axel has a photo of all four of them together. Well, they like they made a lifelong friendship and bond in the first movie. Yes. So Axel abandoned secretly abandons his undercover duties, leaves <laughs> it in the hands of the not capable Paul Reiser. He gets a really fun arc in this. I like that it he is, got to do yeah, some stuff. It, yeah, he's fun. No question about it. I mean, is he the glue and linchpin to the movie? I don't think so, but no. You know. You could cut out every part of his uh, performance and the movie would still Mm -hmm. be the same. And Axel goes to Beverly Hills to track down Taggart and Rosewood, who are, you know, Taggart. He's a bit of a grump, but at the same time, he's totally game. And Rosewood, who is all too happy to dive in and assist him and reveals his secret. Rosewood gets a real some real character depth in this one yeah he's kind of like the stevie to axel yeah. bully's kenny powers yeah that's a great comp because and because he's as crazy and willing to like do whatever for axel yeah he will drive a cement mixer and through so the, town. Yeah, they get in all sorts of schemes and antics rosewood reveals that he's like Really heading toward Dirty Harry territory as a police officer who kind of he's he's on the edge. He's 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 got a massive arsenal now. Yeah. He's got a duster on hand in his trunk of his car for any cool like any cool action moments that he needs to wear a cool jacket for. Um, 
no. Taggart is rightfully concerned for his friend yeah. and partner. <laughs> He's just very worried. Uh, and yeah. also, Taggart, I feel like Taggart is on the verge of being Richard Gere in Brooklyn's finest. Yeah, well, I mean, we know Taggart. Taggart's, uh, things aren't going well with his wife, Maureen, no. back and forth. Very like um, Norm's wife on Cheers, never seen, but felt. <laughs> Her presence permeates Her presence film. felt. <laughs> like, like a cruel specter. No one cheers. Might make an appearance on next week's episode. We'll see. Uh Um, So Axel gets into it. We discover there's a really hip Beverly Hills gun club. An interesting fact that I this was a real type place. Whoa. That apparently in the 80s to go along with every other crazed kind of semi right wing to fully right wing. Trends. Mm. Um, The rich dudes naturally mostly dudes in Hollywood, all got super duper into guns. Mm. To the point where Don Simpson had like an Uzi on his desk for writers meetings. Oh my god. But like all the dudes would go to this like high-end gun club and like shoot stuff. And Simpson, of course, took it way too far and had a full-scale arsenal in his collection. And there's this really funny and scary story in the book uh, High Concept, which will be kind of our Bible for the, mm-hmm. this entire series that he's Simpsons meeting with a writer and he as usual he's like holding a gun and like waving it around during the writers meet and most writers and I'm in that man I'm like pissing my pants I got nothing I'm getting fired because I got no pitch because I don't want to be around it yeah but this other writer he's talking to like grew up around guns and I think was ex-military Simpson puts the gun down on the desk, and as the writer's doing the pitch, he leans over, picks up the gun, and without looking at it, completely disassembles it, and then completely puts it together again, and puts it down in front of Simpson without saying a word, without alluding to it, but just... Like basically throwing his dick and balls on the desk. Oh my god. To outdude Simpson. And Simpson was like, Yeah, you got the job. Like he didn't even listen to him about the script. He was just like, That is so cool what you just did. You're cool. You're, <laughs> You're in. You're a cool dude. Come camping with me. Yeah, you know? let's, go, let's, go, let's go to my cocaine hut in deepest Guam. Yeah, no shit. And it's just like, what a weird time. It is amazing anything got made. It's amazing anything ever gets made with these lunatics. Yeah, they're all just doing drugs and being and, crazy. And be, yeah, doing drugs, being crazy, going to Morton's, and um, apparently all, all trying to woo Brigitte Nielsen. <laughs> oh my god, the ultimate paramour. The ultimate, yeah, and. It's just it's just remarkable. Yeah. So basically, yeah, and this movie is like way more gun heavy mm-hmm. than Beverly Hills Cop One. Like Axel relies a lot more on his wit to get out of jams in Beverly Hills Cop One. And this one is like his wit isn't that great. So it's just they're just blasting people. But Tony Scott does know how to do an action sequence better than most, so the action does slap. Yeah. I mean it's and- exciting stuff. Yeah, and so basically they go on the trail, they which leads them to this gun club, mm-hmm. leads them to Maxwell Dent, mysterious businessman, um, who <laughs> seems to be involved with Carla Fry, 
which I didn't even know her name was Carla Fry. I just thought it was like Brigitte Nielsen as herself. This, yeah. As herself. <laughs> Brigitte Nielsen is herself. And uh, all while trying to avoid Chief Lutz, who's coming down on them. There's a funny bit with Johnny Wishbone, Eddie Murphy's alter ego. God, yeah. <laughs> it just made me laugh. Um, <laughs> and then the rap, do you like rap music toward the end of the action sequence was funny. But like a lot of his bits are very like set up and the movie kind of stops to, for him to get him out. And like relies completely on cuts to Judge Reinhold with a shit eating grin on his face. Just yeah. like, man, this Eddie's the best. It is such a funny movie thing where like it is just taken for granted that Eddie's the fu- or Axel is the funniest man he's in the world. He's funniest super charming. Best guy. He's the best guy. He's, he's perfect. He's a perfect yeah. man. And like yeah. and like he'll like just go on these insane riffs and then his friends will respond with you're a good guy or like yeah let's do it or like it's just it's like they're responding to different things or like i don't know but it's even crazy like, there's like so such weird bits in it like the 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 sequence where like they come over to his house and taggart falls into the pool and it's like this big setup to get taggart to fall in the pool but it's not particularly funny no not at all it. I guess it was to get Taggart to wear weird clothes. Which, yeah, to give Taggart like a nerd costume to wear around and go to a strip club in. The whole thing with where Eddie just goes into that house and is like, this, what was it? What does he say to the foreman? Like, it's like, there there should be no right angles. I'm yeah, gonna, like, he, he just convinces, crazy. Yeah, like he just convinces a foreman and all the workers to leave so he can like squat in this like, and, mansion. And- clearly at this point like no one had control over eddie murphy he was gonna do whatever the fuck he wanted to do agent of pure chaos yeah and like again lucky to survive making it through this movie with all of these personalities on hand um but yeah so they they infiltrate the playboy mansion Mm. eddie embarrasses maxwell dent at the playboy mansion which is a which is cool Mm. that he just basically like names what's going on to everyone in the everyone in the room but this is like after a like seemingly four minute montage of long butts (laughs) playboy playmates just butts butts on butts butts on butts (laughs) and yeah it's just it's an interesting it's an interesting movie it's very entertaining it doesn't have like the charm Mm. of the first one no like there's like um which again, like we talked about it with the in the Martin Breast season that he for a brief moment seemed capable of harnessing. Like mm-hmm. in going in style, Beverly's cop and um obviously Midnight Run. He like knew how to do it mm-hmm. perfectly. But I also think he as we kinda heard, he, you know, went his own way, wanted to do his own thing. You know, I have a feeling he did not want to be like a yes man to Simpson and Bruckheimer. No way. And he doesn't strike me as a um, Colorado River camping trip kind of guy. No. Either. <laughs> like... he, he's like a, the last vestiges of 70s cinema. Mm-hmm. He's not, yeah, he's not like, he's like, he's a nerd like Coppola and Lucas and all those guys. Yeah, and he's like, and he was interested in kind of artier stuff and deeper character stuff. And I think that his thing is, I think he you know, and we, I mean, go back, listen, there's 10 hours on it, but um, he, he tried to be like a serious 
prestige filmmaker and that wasn't actually what his personality was his movies his personality was these like action comedies mm-hmm. you know that have like a human side to him and i think that that's another thing this movie's like lacking it's like there's no humanity in this movie yeah well the thing is is that like breast i think he like more relates to an underdog Mm-hmm. Or like you know, someone there's a fallible quality to the protagonists of his earlier work that yeah. I think Don and Jerry kind of abhor. If anything, like they don't like, I don't think they want. I think they were maybe. I mean, I feel like Don from what you are Don Simpson from what you've told me, uh, he was already an underdog early in his life. Yeah, he, he wanted to escape that as much as possible. Yeah, and you know, and. They they have this very distinct idea of masculinity mm-hmm. that you know obviously there's interesting kind of subconscious elements to their idea of masculinity because there were weird subconscious elements and sad subconscious elements to them mm-hmm. in particular Simpson you know Jerry Bruckheimer smartly throughout his career has um, kept a quite a low profile with the press and um he controls his mouth when he does give interviews and so forth whereas don simpson would you know freely talk about the sex worker he employed uh, the, pre- the previous so, evening i'm while, gonna start calling like, him simpson i'm not i don't want him to yeah. sound like <laughs> while doing like a rail upon rail of coke <laughs> um, uh. yeah like and, you know, I think Tony straddled the line because I think it does sound to me like Tony enjoyed himself in the 1980s mm-hmm. quite a bit. It sounds, seems like he, you know, looking at his, you know, um, had some, uh, had a marriage and a divorce in the 1980s. Yep. Uh, his final wife, interestingly enough, was a woman who, Donna M. Donna Wilson, who was an actress from North Carolina, who in the casting of days of thunder um don simpson developed a massive crush on and kept asking to rewrite scenes to get her more scenes in days of thunder but she was a little skeeved out by don simpson and ended up marrying tony scott her director in of all of those additional scenes of days of thunder um we'll get the heart of the matter with simpson and bruckheimer probably on the days of thunder episode (laughs) coming up coming (laughs) up here but i mean it isn't to say that this movie isn't like fun and action-packed it's just feels a little there's something different and off like the Mm -hmm. magic like um you know it's like the difficulty in making a sequel to a comedy film whereas like you know and eddie murphy used the word spontaneous which i think is huge like you know and hey anchorman 2 has its moments Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's like my definitely my least favorite Adam McKay, Will Ferrell movie. Yeah, well, they, there's like this desire to rehash the greatest hits mm-hmm. of the previous film, and what people don't realize is, yeah, those worked because of, like you said, the spontaneity. Well, they they we didn't know they were coming. We didn't know they were like you know you watch the first you know say what you will about this series, but like I guarantee most people laughed their asses off when they saw the first Hangover movie. Yeah! You know, they had a good time. And, like, Zach Galifianakis' weird non-sequiturs and that kind of stuff was like, wow, who is this? That's fun! You know, that's crazy! You mm-hmm. know? 
And then, you know, when it becomes just another movie, like, I can't believe this is happening again. Yeah. I you lost know? another tooth. Like, I lost, Yeah. And it's just like, this isn't as fun. It's a little, and everyone's getting paid more and they're not tr- like, and a lot of, like a lot of comedies, like it reminds me of like hip hop groups or hip hop artists or punk rock bands. Like their best work is usually their first record because it's like that's when they're hungry that's when they got a lot to go off of and then when you get a little more comfortable it's just like okay i guess we're we're doing this like the excitement and like like you know the the first like hangover movie or the first anchorman movie all of them like it's adam mckay's first movie as a director the first anchorman so Mm -hmm. he's got something to prove it's like all of them like it's really is kind of like a touchstone for will ferrell and his crew's like style of Mm -hmm. comedy you know, like what they're like, what this is what we do, you know, a movie like Hangover. It's like the three leads they had, they, you know, obviously all had worked and had some successes, but this was kind of like an opportunity. Like, Hey, we're getting a summer release. We're going to get a chance to show off or show off our shit. And right, right, right. that's, and so they're really like pushing it. They're trying mm-hmm. their best. And then it's like, okay, you're getting paid a ton of money. We're back in Vegas. Everybody's cool. But I, you know, like Bradley Cooper's probably already thinking about like, I want to direct a movie. He's not thinking about playing that guy. Oh, hell no. <laughs> Hangover, yeah. you know? And I mean, not to say that he doesn't try. I mean, he's a great actor. I'm sure he does, but uh, like, it just kind of happens this way. Mm-hmm. So, and you know, in this movie, you know, from the jump had, Beverly Hills Cop 2 has these moments of like, you know, going back to the original idea. So the basic original idea was that they're going to send Axel Foley to Paris for mm. the second Beverly Hills Cop movie. Um, you know, which is still a rehash, but it's like a little bit more interesting of a rehash because it's like he's going to be a fish out of water, but this time he's in Europe. Yeah. You know, we get Where it. Everyone but... is a Serge. Yeah. Oh, it's a bunch of Serges. <laughs> um, but he and then Eddie Murphy said, I don't want to work outside the United States. Rewrite it. And well, we're not going to make the movie without Eddie, you know. So it's just like the personalities kind of come into play, and you know, the Bruckheimer and Simpson. This was their third, like, massive movie mm. that they had done. There's a, there's a, so it was Flashdance, Top Gun, and this one, but. There's, of course, another movie that came in between some of these movies that we'll be talking about next week. That is a oddball anomaly, to say oh, the no. least. But Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun. This is their fourth, pardon me, because Beverly Hills Cop, Flashdance, Beverly Hills Cop, Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2 of kind of their big time, big flashy MTV rock and roll, like, you know, blockbusters. Mm. And that they created a formula for and but everyone's feeling their feeling their shit like you know simpson and Bruckheimer think they're the hottest they are the visionary alliance they're the hottest producers in town mm-hmm. despite the fact that critics hate their guts completely they think that they are destroying the culture with their stuff and you know there's ups and downs to that argument i'd oh, say what was that supremely cursed quote you said uh, to me the um, other day about like like the the money. We'll we'll, we'll read it next week. We'll read it it's it's yeah. it's in essence that that they saw their goal and their job is to make money. If you accidentally made a good movie, 
good, quote unquote, if you accidentally made a piece of art, cool. But it's all in service of the machine, which is uh, why like they were perfect avatars for Reagan's America and mm-hmm. the entertainment. You know, they read the minds of whatever happened, you know, and there's better books. The Rick Perlstein books would be probably a good place to start if you want to know whatever happened in America to cause the shift from the 60s to the 70s to the 80s mm-hmm. in terms of what was valued for for middle class America. Um, go ahead and do that. I recommend it. We're he's better than we are (laughs) at explaining that kind of thing but simpson and bruckheimer and to an extent steven spielberg you know were the people who had their pulse on what that was um i think steven spielberg leaned hard into kind of like his difference was when he got powerful you know he still wanted to be in the game but at the same time he wanted to prove he you know, was as good as his peers, mm-hmm. which leads to movies like Color Purple, uh, Empire of the Sun, all the way to um, Schindler's List, in trying to kind of prove I'm, a, you know, I belong with Scorsese and Coppola and those kind of people. Whereas Simpson and Bruckheimer, and this is why Simpson, you know, met his end, is that he just never he said he just saw it as a continued more, more, more. And didn't look for personal, he didn't know what the line was for personal satisfaction. So it was just mm-hmm. louder, bigger, crazier. And that is the difference between, you know, Beverly Hills Cop and Flashdance to an extent kind of like walked the line between the end of the 70s into the 80s. But by the time of Top Gun, Beverly Hills Cop 2 and Days of Thunder, we are like in the heart of Reagan's America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're in the we're in the cocaine addled like eye of the storm yeah yeah and you know tony scott to his credit like is able to hone his craft and do stuff within it because i think he kind of dug that flashiness Mm -hmm. and what what we'll find as his career progresses is that he finds a way to make that flashiness take it from being the most mainstream possible to being a near avant-garde level of like chaos Mm-hmm. Controlled, controlled chaos in his later films like Man on Fire and Domino and, um, you know, films like that. Gotcha. But we'll get to that in a bit. Um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting, interesting film. I mean, I, I like it. There's like, yeah, and there's so many like great visual moments. Like, I don't know. There's like this scene that's so beautiful where like Bridget Nielsen's about to like shoot eddie murphy mm-hmm. and it's like played seriously he's about to shoot eddie murphy and there's the oil derricks is behind her it's that classic like you know red glean you know reddish uh, tint of tony scott's films and then like horses are going by mm-hmm. and it's just like what is this doing in this movie it's so like i don't know like, like, it is a testament to tony's skills as a visual craftsman that even mm-hmm. in a movie as kind of vapid as this one there's still like moments of pure visual sumptuousness we should note too that um i think this is our um i think we're up to four appearances of like birds slowly flying past during action sequences <laughs> across the scott scott films i believe duelists mm-hmm. blade runner certainly yes um believe the hunger yeah i think you're right and this one 
there's birds in the barn. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it's a very John Woo. But uh I also this is this predates it it's kind of simultaneous, but uh Tony Scott is a noted um and quoted John Woo freak. Mm. He was a big fan of that style, and you could see it. The kinetic crazed action oriented style of dudes rocking yeah basically and it's like dudes rocking before anything else yeah yeah that's yeah. like the main point <laughs> yeah and and i mean and that's been you know outside the hunger and i i'm i'm looking forward to getting through this and wondering if the hunger is his his actual like he wasn't totally invested in the system so he could do kind of what he freakily felt like and then every movie after that he's working within the system he's mm-hmm. doing cool action like noteworthy singular action movies but these are all kind of designed to be mainstream blockbuster hits well it treats from, from it, here on out yeah he treats it like you get the sense and i could be wrong but you get the sense that he treats it the way he treats directing a commercial uh-huh. or like you know that horse is going by the uh, oil derrick that like symbol symboliz- that symbol of like pure americana like that's would also be at home in a fucking wells fargo commercial yeah or yeah or a fucking yeah budweiser commercial like it's very like it is crazy how he can just like in- like instrumentalize his like eye mm-hmm. but yeah he's um it, it it's a balance that both he and his brother strike in their films is this kind of like we are commercial directors we are admin we know what sells we know what slick cool images are we're always on the hunt for the slickest coolest image but working in a realm but i think like you know i think the series you know over the next few months is going to really help us kind of realize that we are doing this podcast looking at things in retrospect we're thinking about careers we're thinking about like artistic arcs. Most people in Hollywood, even the people at the highest levels, are just kind of like looking for their next gig and trying not to get fired from that gig and maintaining their place in the pecking order. Mm-hmm. They're not thinking about, oh man, when some critic writes a book about me, what themes are they going to be? thinking about there's only one filmmaker who has any like mapped out plan like that and because he is a freak who only thinks about this and that's quentin tarantino Mm -hmm. and he's incredibly lucky to be in the and he would be the first to tell you he's incredibly lucky to be in the position he's in none of his peers maybe paul thomas anderson are at that level of like but paul thomas anderson's movies don't make any money that's the uh, the difference. Quentin Tarantino's movies make money. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what's going to keep him in the fold. And, you know, Tarantino is a peripheral member of this universe. Tony yeah. Scott directed to romance. Um, and Tarantino did some rewrites for um, Crimson Tide. Oh. As well. That. Yeah. And The Rock, supposedly. Hmm. Um, which we'll talk about it. Crimson Tide, you can tell. You'll be able to point out when you see the film, the lines that he added of dialogue, because <laughs> they're very like, wait a second, why is Denzel Washington giving his opinions on different versions and eras of the comic book Silver Surfer? 
That's just Quentin. That's just Quentin Tarantino wrote those lines. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's not whoever the seventy-five-year-old man who typically writes those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah, he's he know because he was brought in. Like he's of that era too, because I believe our friend Aaron Sorkin did some rewrites on those ones too. Mm. He's of the same era of like, oh, they're flashy. They know how to do dialogue. Let's bring them in to spice it up, pay them extra. But yeah, so it's like we're going to touch on, you're going to get the opportunity with the series to kind of touch on everything of the 80s and 90s in, you know, filmmaking up until today of kind of how it you know today it feels like it's more corporate mm-hmm. than it's ever been it's more corporate but at least like you know and i mean obviously you know taking away a lot of the per- dark personal elements that surround especially don simpson yeah um there is like the idea of like a an opinionated lunatic making million dollar calls Rather than a sourced out group of Harvard MBAs making million dollar calls, mm. there is something kind of like, well, we don't know what we're going to get. And which leads me, you know, next week to, you know, we're going to watch a movie called Thief of Hearts next week. I've watched it already. I don't think Patrick's watched no, it. No, I'm excited. I'm, I'm, in, um, I'm, in, I'm in, I cannot wait to see this boy. <laughs> it is a truly oddball film. And I recommend to our listeners, because um, we're going to spoil the hell out of that one. We didn't spoil this one too much because I think you can have fun and just get into it with this one. Yeah. We're going to spoil the hell out of Thief of Hearts next week, just a heads up, because we yeah. got to talk about some key moments. I encourage everyone to listen to it, watch the film beforehand, because it is a truly bonkers. It came out, big names produced it. It was a major release. And yet, unlike. Every other movie there in the 1980s catalog, it did not work. And oh, no. so we'll get an idea of that. And we're also going to be taking like the film Flash Dance next week. Um, both movies are available to rent pretty much through any uh, streaming service that's out there. I've never seen Flash Dance. So I'm excited for that. It looms so large. It reminds yeah. me of Easy Rider, where like there are so many like. That there's like an that one or two, those one or two iconic moments in Flashdance that have been parodied so really, much. Um, really apt because generationally, too, because Easy Rider kind of laid the groundwork for how films were going to be the next eight or nine years, mm-hmm. and one could argue Flashdance did the same. Interesting, I, and I, mean, I will also from what I've read. And I, and I think I think also next week I'll go into there really isn't that much because like the thing about Harold Faltermeyer is there's not really that much like Beverly Hills Cop 2. You get a sense that that's like a footnote in his life. Like there's pretty much all all, all that he really brings up is like there's like a fun anecdote anecdote anecdote. There's a fun anecdote about uh, him apparently like he wanted when because Glenn Fry wrote the original theme song from Beverly Hills Cop with him. The heat is uh, on. The heat is on. Yep, the heat is on. Uh, and so Harold and uh, Harold and uh, Jerry and the gang wanted to bring him back for a shakedown for like the next song. And so basically, Glenn Fry did not like what Harold Faltermeyer wrote. And so instead of just like, did I already say? I, I said this before we recorded, right? Yeah, I okay, think it was just like, 
Yeah, give or take. It's at the top. Something somewhere. But basically, he walk. He ghosted him. Yeah, he ghosted him. And so, and then he still got, like, an Oscar win. So, like, that's pretty much the only, um, that's, like, the only real bit. And it's, and then after this, like, Harold Faltemeyer's career kind of, like, uh, you know, it's purposefully it dwindles to a certain degree. But, like, it's interesting. Like, he kind of, like, does, he only does, like, The Running Man, Tango and Cash. And then the last film he does is Cuffs. Uh, with Christmas wow. Slater. Yeah, That's oh, like I, know last... oh, I know Cuffs. But, <laughs> oh, for sure. But I, I definitely want to like, I think it'll be interesting to talk about him next week too because he's such a, he's such an interesting juxtaposition to Don Simpson. And mm-hmm. we talk about how, you know, we talk about how it is possible. You can be a lunatic and still be like a decent guy for the most part. And Harold Faltemeyer is like the rare example of that. But then the thing too is, is that Harold Faltemeyer also had this very idyllic upbringing in like the German countryside. He had like 25 acres of like country. And like he, he, he describes his like upbringing as Huckleberry Finn-esque. Like, <laughs> and I think that there's a distinctly, and I think American men mm. have bigger issues when it comes to like, being pissed off and holding real grudges from their upbringing. And you can, you know, name it down the years, everyone from Don Simpson to Steve jobs to, you know, Mm -hmm. whoever Um, difficulties with your upbringing, difficulties with your parents, difficulties with your damn dad Um, loom large for these people. And, and I don't know if it's the American schooling. I mean, sure. Bullies exist outside of america yeah but... he ta- it's funny he talks about getting bullied a lot weirdly enough like harold because like i think like his his parents wouldn't like let him cross the road in front of his house yeah. or something because like uh like it was like one of those like street you know how like was it in germany like the autobahn or whatever how there's like streets with like no like uh speed limit or whatever so apparently one of those is, was very close to his property and so he had to like his parents had to walk him across the road for most of his like for most of well, his life i think too um Although, you know, you can't say in Europe, though, that they are far more in touch with emotions and feelings and like letting those not be something to be embarrassed about. Whereas, like, you know, Don Simpson gets picked on. It's like, suck it up, chubby. Fight back. And obviously, like, Harold Faltermeyer's parents or whatever, you know, within that system were probably like sat down and be like, it's okay to say if someone says something to you at school that that hurt your feelings that you didn't like that it you don't have to like it's a valid response to say i was hurt rather than the only valid response for a young american man is fight back that is so like because like yeah it's not like he like his parents like loved him and like fostered his love for music i don't think did don have the don simpson have anything like he, he he lived in Alaska with um hardcore born again Christian. Uh, see, that's like, yeah, that's the that's because that's just not you're going to rebel against that. And the rebellion is going to be so hard. He was like a mid tier, you know, not not totally cool, but not like a straight up poindexter. Mm-hmm. Um, but he like overplayed it like his stories. Another thing, too, like that feels distinctly American. It's like when you do get famous to like really embellish shit to the point of lying to the press mm. about your background. To the point of like, you know, 
Bob Dylan taking on the entire persona of Bob Dylan when he's Robert Zimmerman, Jewish kid from Minnesota, when he's telling people he's Bob Dylan, I rode the rails with Woody Guthrie and like fought, you know, at like John Steinbeck style um, oh <laughs> labor God. events and stuff like that, you know, and I ran away and joined the circus and your story changes all the time to the point where it becomes a myth and no one knows what the truth is, you know. Don Simpson would tell people like I got in trouble with the mob in Alaska or I, you know, yeah, the Alaskan mob, yeah. women love me so much when he was like a kid who read comic books and was a nerd, Ooh. you know, and like, and the, the thing that he had, which everyone said he was brilliant at is like, he was like the first guy to come up with like, this is what a movie is. This is the three X structure. This is where things happen. Like That's enough. he invented all of that stuff. And that, well, say what you will about like trying to like create a scientific structure for an art form yeah but that's a cool most people don't have like one skill that's they're really good at like that and you should find satisfaction in that and i don't know what it was about him that you know led him you know to dying on a toilet at 50 uh, um I, you yeah. know only you know less than 10 years from the release of Biblios Cup 2. That's so, yeah. Well, and you look at, like, Baltimore, too. Like, while he was in high school, he was in a band that, like, his parents were able to, like, talk to, like, German, so German television in the 60s, early 60s. Only There were only two channels. And Harold Baltimore's father was able to, like, talk, like, was able to get him, like, gigs on German TV. So he was on, like, a... The band he was in was on like a it's called I think the show was called Talent Schuppen, which was like a proto American Idol, and so by the time he was like in his teens, he was already semi famous, mm -hmm. and so I think that like with that, supportive parents with who su like super supportive thought parents. his dream was cool and he should be a musician. Yeah, because his parents were musicians, and yeah. they and he they let him like drop out of school. They were like, because he was like a bad student. They were like, oh, And, okay. and apparently upon the release of Flashdance, Don Simpson's parents sent him a Bible and said, you know, your soul needs help for oh. creating, creating something like this. And that's like, you might not agree, but yeah, I don't know. That's like, yeah, it's, inter it's an interesting juxtaposition. So I wanted to say a quick off topic thing. We said we were going to talk quickly about Gil Hill, who plays Inspector Todd. Oh yeah. So Gil Hill was a decorated Detroit police officer oh, who no. they like basically Inspector Todd is him. <laughs> He's just like this was like this dick cop. Like oh, hard ass cop who was like decorated and like a like heroic known figure on the Detroit police force. Um from like the fifth, like late fifties onward. Wow! And uh, he retired as a cop in uh, nineteen eighty nine, just a couple years after. So he was still on the force when he made the two, the his two Beverly Hills Cop appearances. And um, he said the only difference between his famous character's life and his own was he didn't curse as much. Um, <laughs> I love he has the best line in the movie. I wrote it down. It's like uh, it's up there with the uh, Scotty Appleton's famous line. Uh, where is it? I just saw it. Uh, don't think it makes my dick itch. Yeah, <laughs> great. That, uh, whoever, whatever one of the 
10,000 screenwriters wrote that for him. Good job. Good line. Um, he, uh, yeah, you know, he, um, yeah, was just hunting out, um, notorious killers, just like, like a true, like Michael Mann type cop character. Mm -hmm. But then after he retired, he became a councilman, president of the city council of Detroit in 1997. And he tried to run for mayor of Detroit in 2001, initially considered a leading candidate. Um, but somehow didn't work out for him. He did not get elected mayor. I think he lost and, to Kwame Kilpatrick, who yes. ended up having to serve time, if I remember correctly. Yeah, well, not <laughs> America, man. <laughs> oh, man, yeah, that whole, yeah, not a lot of great uh, mayors in Detroit. But uh, he passed away in 2016 at the age of 84. Mm, wow, and uh, his only um, acting work was the three Beverly Hills Cop films. So, what a, uh, I mean, you know, interesting film interesting time uh fun time if you haven't seen it uh don't expect the kind of out of this world one you know lightning in a bottle magic mm -hmm. of the first film but a good tony scott entertainment joint nonetheless so as we mentioned before next week we're heading into our simpson bruckheimer digression you'll learn more fun and frankly not so fun facts about don simpson and his career. Uh, we'll talk more Faltermeyer because guess what? He scored Thief of Hearts <laughs> as we get into Flashdance and Thief of Hearts. And then the week after that, our 100th episode. Ooh. We don't know what we're doing yet, but we're excited. We want to thank everyone for um, hanging out. Hopefully, any 100 heads out there, send us an email. Ooh, <laughs> Have you listened to all 100 of them? To, Let to us our, know. To our one fan in Alberta, please we will, send us an um, email. <laughs> Let us know your name, and we will give you a shout-out on the 100th episode. Send us an email. Uh, the Academy Academy Podcast at gmail.com. Or a direct message on, on the Twitter machine. Yeah, please. I can call it that. I'm 40. <laughs> <laughs> this is 40. This is 40. Oh, what mm. technology with mm. the kid? Goddamn millennials. Anyway, I just want to eat, eat my damn cupcakes. I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I was thinking about ordering some donuts this morning. That did cross my mind. Donuts sound good. Anyway, uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2, fun. Not perfect, but we got some fun stuff ahead. Got the Simpson Bruckheimer digression. We have our 100th episode. And then if you really want to look down the line, we'll be covering Ridley Scott's Legend. The week after that. Mm. But until then, we'll see you next time. I gotta water all my uh, plants, all my succulents. What, what kind of music do they like? Uh, smooth jazz. Smooth jazz. Nice. <laughs> they perk up. They perk up with the smooth jazz. Yes, the, the, the dulcet tones Man, of Kenny G. We, we talked so long about this, we didn't even get into Gilbert Godfrey. Oh, well. Yeah, well. <laughs> bye! Bye, bye. <laughs>